You may be seated. What is it that you crave out of life? What are the main desires you have for a life well-lived? As a follower of Jesus, what is the life God has always wanted for you? In this message series, we'll explore Trinity's six core values. This week, we'll focus on we pursue spiritual growth and life change in community. From the beginning, Trinity Church prioritized small groups of people regularly gathering in community. We pursue personal and family growth by following Jesus' call to build up each other in sacrificial love. We offer a variety of small groups and focus teams where we meet regularly to love and encourage each other and bear one another's burdens. It is in this rich community of doing life together that we experience God's love and grow in grace. These are the things that we care about most and how they might lead to the life we've always wanted. All right. Hey, good morning, Trinity Church. Hey, you are going to need a Bible this morning, and you are going to need to turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. For those of you who are new or maybe you don't know who I am, my name is Jared Mantania, and I am the local missions and young adults pastor. Yeah, let's go. All right, let's go, young adults. Very cool. And uh, one of the things that we do in young adults every fall, just to acclimate new young adults to uh, this fellowship and to this Bible study, to this community, is we do a fall potluck. And uh, it's a great time just to uh, connect with new people as well as to cultivate and to forge uh, old friendships. And so this past fall, we had an amazing potluck. Uh, don't let the young adults fool you. They know how to cook really well. And... Um, more than just eggs and cereal and mac and cheese. Um, we had an amazing potluck, and uh, uh, a few days later, after uh, this, this fall kickoff event, I get this text from uh, one of the gals, and she says, Jared, I need you to do me a huge favor. I need you to find out who in the world made the chocolate chip cookies. They were the most delicious, amazing cookies that I have ever had in my life. And so I asked my wife, I said, do you know who made the chocolate chip cookies? Because apparently these were just like life-altering, life-changing chocolate chip cookies. She said, I don't know who cooked them but, or who baked them, but uh, if you find out, let me know, because I would love the recipe. I would love to have that. And so for about a week, the hunt was on. Who in the world made these delicious chocolate chip cookies? So finally, after about a week, after some careful investigation, we finally found out who made it. And I just said, hey, listen, we need the recipe for that. We need to know what is the secret sauce to your chocolate chip cookies? What, what, is, what did grandma or mom or whoever, what did they teach you to put in these chocolate chip cookies that are really amazing? And, and I get this LOL text back. And the gal said, it's just the recipe off the back of the Nestle's Toll House chocolate chip cookies. And those of you who watch Friends, Nestle's Toll House, Toulouse. It was really funny. We thought there would be some magical secret sauce and in ingredients, but come to find out it was just some simple ingredients from Nestle's Toll House chocolate chip cookies. 
Now, for those of you who bake, or maybe you just, in general, you like chocolate chip cookies, you know that in order to have the right, or to have a good cookie, you know you have to have the right ingredients. I believe it's the same when it comes to our core value that we're looking at this morning of pursuing spiritual growth and life change in community. We have to have the right ingredients. We have to have the right essentials. So what are those? What are those things? What are those essential things that are foundational and necessary to make our church, Trinity Church, more than just a church, but truly a life-giving church, a life-changing church? What are those things? That's what I want to explore this morning in our passage in Acts chapter two, four essentials of life-changing community. Before we jump into our passage, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this outpost of your kingdom. My brothers and sisters who have named the name of Jesus, who have bowed the knee to Jesus the King, as we just sang so wonderfully about. Father, I pray that as we get into your word, your Holy Spirit would teach us, he would instruct us, he would forge us, he would mold us, he would grow us, he would transform us more into the image of Christ and more into the image of the church that you want us to be. Not our own perception, Father. Not what we think it should look like, but what you want it to look like for our good, for your glory, and for the furtherance of the kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter two, your Bibles are open. Starting in verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And verse 44, now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and their property, and they distributed the proceeds to all as any who had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to the meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house, and they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So let me just give you some real quick context to the passage that we just read. In this passage, Luke is describing for us what happened in the early days of the church's birth. Right before this, the first Christian sermon is preached by the apostle Peter as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit and he unpacks scripture and he tells the people the good news of Jesus. And amazingly, 3,000 people, yes, you heard that correctly, 3,000 people end up getting saved. And so this passage, Luke begins to describe what these new Christians, these 3,000 plus Christians begin to do and begin to devote their lives to. And I hope you saw it because in six different distinct ways, Luke says that they kept gathering together. And the way that is worded in the original Greek is like they kept doing this over and over and over and over and over again. They kept on meeting together. For the early church, being together, gathering together was not something they did when they could fit it in or when they had to, but listen carefully, it was something they did habitually, regularly, 
and continuously. They took seriously what the writer of Hebrews would later write in Hebrews 10, 25. Let us not neglect our gathering together as some are in the habit of, but let's encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. I bring this up because it is very popular, it's very vogue, it's very trendy these days for a lot of people to believe that they could be Christians apart from committing and being part of a local body or a local church family. In fact, I was just having a conversation earlier in the fireside room of somebody who is walking alongside somebody who has that belief and that, that way of thinking. But the Bible, the Bible is very clear and it really warns against trying to live what we would call Lone Ranger Christianity and trying to just do it on your, your own or when you could fit it in. And for a lot of people, sports or work or other things, other activities often will trump. They will often be more important than getting together on a regular habitual basis with God's people for worship. Proverbs 18.1, you might want to write this down. It says this, that whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. As a young adult's pastor, when I hear young adults saying that they're gonna go when they're transferring from community college to a different college or they're moving out of state or they're gonna begin life somewhere else outside of this um, community or outside of Redlands or outside of uh, the Inland Empire, the first question I will ask them is, have you sought out a local church? That needs to be the first priority that you have if you're gonna be moving. You need to get involved, you need to get plugged in to a local body of believers because Christians gather with other Christians. Amen, we could, yeah, we see that plainly in scripture. Now just real quickly, I don't wanna guilt trip you guys because some of you are thinking, okay, those of you who are type A like me, like wait a minute, do I need to be at church every time uh, the doors are open? And the answer to that is no. There are extenuating circumstances and obstacles that prevent us from being able to gather. My wife, some of you may know this, some of you may not. I hope she doesn't mind, but my wife has been battling uh, illness for the last six months. And so her ability, and, uh, her ability to be here on a regular basis has been hindered. She's not able to be here as often as she would like or that we would like. Some of you, you faced illness and you faced obstacles physically and maybe financially, car issues and things like that. There are obstacles. But what I'm saying is the objections, the objections, the objections that people will give to say, oh, you know what, I don't need to be part of a local Christian community. The two that I often hear most in the role that I'm in is one is I've been hurt by the church. And can I just say this, I'm sorry if you have been hurt by the church. I have been hurt by the church as a pastor, as a leader. I've been doing ministry for 20 years. I've gone through my fair share of church hurt. And I just wanna say, if, if the church has hurt you, I'm sorry. But the Bible says that when sinners come together with other sinners, there's gonna be hurt, unintentionally and sometimes, unfortunately, intentionally. But here's the thing. If you've ever had food poisoning, anyone ever had the fortunate blessing of food poisoning? 
do you stop eating? Do you stop going out? Do you stop eating a meal? No. You just pick a safer place. <laughs> you pick a place that's healthier and better for you. You pick a place that isn't going to be so harmful and hurtful. But you also do what Jesus says, which is you extend forgiveness towards those who have hurt you. And I know it's hard. I know it's tough. We all know it's tough. But when God's people get together, there is no guarantee that it's going to be clean and sweet. And it's always going to result in us always getting along together and not hurting one another. So that is one obstacle that people have. And the other is just simply the obstacle of I don't need to be part of the family of God. I don't need to be part of a local church. And I would just say this, that when a limb is severed off of the body, what happens to that limb? Doctors, it dies. It dies. I have yet to known a healthy, growing Christ follower who purposely, willfully isolates themselves from the body of Christ. So Luke says, this early church, this new body, this new community of Christians, they were committed to regularly, habitually coming together to worship God. And we're told that as they gathered together, there were four essential commitments that they were engaging in on a regular basis. Verse 42 says that the early church, that they were a learning church, that they were committed to the word of God, that they had a hunger and a thirst for God's word and that they were committed to coming together to hear the word of God taught to them by the apostles who were faithfully passing on what they learned from Jesus. Those things that later would become the New Testament, the 27 books of our Bible from Matthew all the way to Revelation. Just as the early church devoted themselves to learning God's word together, we seek to do the same today, to devote ourselves to the study and the application of God's word together in community. Going back to verse 42, it says this, that the early church were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And how, how many of you are teachers in here? Any teachers in here? I used to be a teacher. Lots of teachers in here. Some of you are professors and some of you, high school, middle school, elementary, God bless you. But you know that in, in, teaching, in, in teaching that there is two responsibilities, both on the student's part and the teacher's part. And so it was for the early church. There was a responsibility on two fronts for the apostles and the congregation. For the apostles, their responsibility was to faithfully teach the word of God as it was handed down to them from Jesus. And so too, listen carefully, any of you who are a teacher of the word of God, whether small groups, large groups, for any of us who stand up here Sunday to Sunday, it's so important that we remember that we have been entrusted and called to faithfully teach the word passed on to us, just as the apostles faithfully were to hand down and transmit the words that Jesus had given to them. We are called, if you are a teacher of the word of God, we are called to be faithful stewards who diligently study, 
and rightfully divide and proclaim the word of truth. Scripture makes it clear that anyone who is teaching is held to a higher standard, James 3 says. We have a serious and a sober calling as teachers of the word and we are responsible to make it clear and understandable and faithful as possible to its original meaning and to definitely make it applicable, how it applies and changes people's lives. If you are a teacher of the word, the responsibility, your role in this is to take seriously the charge of 2 Timothy 4, 2 that says preach the word, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, encourage people with great patience and teaching. It's also important to remember that the apostles, as they were, as these people were coming to them, these 3,000 plus people, and they were hearing the word of God proclaimed, that their role, that their job was one of equipping. It was one of equipping and seeking to build up these new Christians they were seeking to build them up so that they would be healthier and stronger as Christ followers. And that's the goal that we have. Listen, we don't preach. Those of you who handle the word of God, your responsibility, your preaching is not just for information alone, but it's ultimately for spiritual transformation, that people will become more like Jesus. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13? He says, that he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, listen to this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into, listen, growing into full maturity with the stature made by Christ's fullness. What Paul is saying is God has gifted the church with these apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, so that they would equip these people so that they would become more and more and more and more mature to become like Christ. So listen, our goal when we preach, teach the word of God is not just information, but it's spiritual transformation. So that was the apostles' responsibility, but the congregation had a responsibility. These 3,000 new believers had a responsibility. What was it? Well, if the apostles, it was faithful teaching, theirs was faithful listening. It was faithful listening. It was coming to, live, to, to hear the word of God and to let it do its work in their hearts and in their lives. Listen carefully. When these people came together to hear the apostles' teaching, they were hungry and thirsty for the word of God. They were not coming to the apostles' Bible study to be sermon connoisseurs or sermon critics, but they came eager to receive the word and to continue in the word. I've, I bring that up and here's why. I've been a Christian for about 20 years and when I first became a Christian, man, I, I couldn't get enough of the word and I would just come to Bible study. Let's go. Bible open, pen open, journal open like our young adults. Good job, guys. And be ready. Okay, what is the pastor going to say? Let's go. And it was all so new to me. But over time, guess what began to happen? Yeah, you know what? I didn't really like that sermon illustration. Mm, you know what, that intro was pretty weak. I didn't like that cross-reference. I would've went with a different one. And slowly but surely, I began to be a sermon critic rather than just letting and receiving God's word and letting it do its work in my heart. It's easy to let that happen over time, isn't it? It is, it is. 
Now, real quickly, before you go, I'm out of here. There is a place for discernment and making sure that what is being taught isn't false teaching. There is a place for that. But we need to come hungry and eager to hear what God's word has to say to us. Listen, not just for our spouse. Oh, I really wish my wife heard that. You listening to this? <laughs> Honey, you listening to what he says? Ephesians 5, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Let's go. It's not just for our kids. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sneak my sermon notes into my kid's bedroom. And it's not just for our friends. When we come here, we should be coming with the heart posture of, Lord, what do you want to say to me as I come to hear your word? When I go with my small group, Lord, what is it that you want to speak to me? What is it you want to say through my small group leaders? And, and as we unpack scripture and we talk about our life and what's taking place in these things. James 1, 21 through 22 says, therefore rid yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves so faithful preaching faithful listening and when this happens lives are transformed lives are transformed there's so much i could say about the word of god and its role in our life for spiritual transformation but i want to encourage you if you were not here a few weeks ago or maybe you were here, I wanna encourage you to go back and to listen to Scott Blakey's message that he did on the value of the Bible here at Trinity. Just such a great explanation of the word of God and why we value it so much. So, essential number one, coming together, committed to the word of God. Essential number two says they were committed to one another. Look at verse 42, they were devoted to the fellowship, or in the Greek, it's the word koinonia, it's, uh, it, it's not so much now, but back in the day, many of you know this, that we didn't have small groups. We had koinonia groups, right? And uh, fellowship, we hear that word, hey, let's get together and have some fellowship. And usually what we mean by that is let's, let's watch football and eat some chips and guac and let's just hang out, right? But fellowship, it's like this churchy word and we often, um, we often think of it as something we do around some food or some stale cookies or things like that, but that's not what koinonia is. Koinonia in the Bible, it, it speaks of uh, a shared life or a sharing life. It speaks of commonness and partnership. Fellowship in the Bible is less about being committed to an activity and more about being deeply committed to one another and living out the 59 one another passages that are described in the New Testament. Luke as he's describing this community, this newly formed Christian community, he's describing this community that is really devoted to one another, not so much an activity of doing something. And in verse 45, he gives us this example of how they were devoted to one another. Look at what he says in verse 45. He says, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any who had need. Now this is not Luke's suggestion to become a Marxist socialist commune. I know some of you are like, whoo, we're gonna all have to live together and I'm gonna have to sell the property and we're all gonna hang out together. But what Luke is doing, he is painting this picture of a burden-bearing community. 
that displays itself in the caring of one another and the sharing of other, one another's needs. So, so here's the thing. Genuine biblical fellowship is community that is others-centered. It's others-centered. It seeks to come alongside our brothers and sisters to bear their burdens, and it's not what could people do for me, but what can I do for others? That is what Luke is describing. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to each other. What could I do to help my brother and sister? How could I build them up? How could I support them? How could I encourage them? How could I have their back in this situation? One of the greatest dangers that kills churches yearly is a consumeristic attitude. When people come to the church and they say, well, what's here for me? What's here for me? What are you gonna do for me? What kind of children's ministry program will you have? What kind of calendaring event, what kind of events are you gonna be planned? What, what is in this for me? What are you gonna do to scratch my itch? And here's the thing, statistic after statistic tells us that a consumeristic attitude and spirit kills churches. Luke describes not a consumeristic church, but he describes a contributing church. It's a church that is seeking to serve one another, to share with one another, to give towards one another, to pray for one another, to, to be involved in each other's lives, to say, how could I help you, even if there's nothing that you could contribute to me? A consumeristic church is always me-oriented, but a healthy, growing, transforming church is always others-centered. And by the way, I think we do that pretty well here at Trinity. One of my roles is to oversee our HELPS funds. And it is amazing to see your guys' generosity week in and week out. I've been doing this role for about two and a half, almost three years. We've stayed pretty much constant in the amount of money uh, that we have today than when I first started. And we give a lot away. In fact, if you were to ask Scott Clayton, our business manager, in the last couple years, we've probably given more out in help funds than in the history of Trinity Church. And that's all because you guys understand this value of, it's not about what Trinity could do for me, but what could I do for Trinity Church and the people of Trinity Church? And I just wanna tell you guys, you guys are doing a great job at this. This is a cool thing. This is a good thing. But maybe this isn't how you approach coming together for the church. Maybe for you, it's been about what can Trinity Church do for me, not what could I do for them. So the question that we need to wrestle with this morning is this, when it comes to being part of a local body of Christians is, am I primarily a consumer or a contributor? Am I primarily giving or taking? If we want to continue to see our church grow healthy and spiritually and become more like Jesus, we want to be a people who are all about the contributing to the local church. That's why, again, I tell young adults when they leave, find a local church that's teaching the word and start serving. Get involved. Get some skin in the game. And start using the gifts that God has given you to help other people follow Christ. Essential number three, they were committed to a culture of belonging. It says here that they would come together for the breaking 
of bread or of sharing in community meals. And this meant definitely like potlucks and food and things like that, but it also included what we would say is the Lord's Supper or communion, which we are going to be partaking in a few minutes, so don't forget to get your uh, packet there. In the near Middle East, the breaking of bread or the sharing of meal with someone was something that was only reserved for friends, and it always indicated belonging and acceptance. It always preached the message of belonging and acceptance, and that's why the religious leaders were always upset with Jesus, because he was always eating food with people that the religious elite would never eat with. Remember in Mark chapter 2, uh, Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to come and to follow him. What does Matthew do? He immediately opens up his house, and he prepares this great feast, and he invites all these sinners and these tax collectors, and Jesus is sitting at the table, reclining, eating, breaking bread with them, sharing in the same bread, sharing the same food. Their hands were touching the same things. They're, they're sitting next to each other, rubbing elbows with one another, drinking together, just having a good old time. And the religious people look at Jesus, and they're like, there's no way you could be Messiah. The Messiah would never accept and let people like this belong. In fact, they come to his apostles to his disciples, and they ask him, why does Jesus eat with such scum? They couldn't fathom Jesus saying, hey, these people belong too because of their faith in me. So in scripture, when we see that they were breaking bread together and eating together, it was a reminder, it was a proclamation that the kingdom of Jesus, it is vast, it is wide, it is diverse, it is different. It is not just for some or for those who have their act together, but for any and all who have placed their faith in Jesus. One of the essential marks of a life-changing church is one that helps other people to belong and to become friends. Who helped you to belong? Who helped you? I see some friends down here who their neighbors help them to belong. Some of you, it's your coworker. Some of you, it's your in-laws or it's your spouse. They brought you to church and helped you to belong. Who helped you to belong? How did they do that? How did they help you to belong? For me, it was this young man, ironically, his name was Levi, Matthew. And uh, every Friday night, our young adult group, we would go to Bible study. And then after that, we would go to Denny's. And it's not because Denny's is like high-end food. If you like it, sorry, no shot, sorry. We would go to Denny's and we would have our Bibles open and we would talk about life and we would talk about what God is doing in our lives and our struggles and what we could pray for each other about. And we would stay at Denny's to the point they would be like, hey, you guys gotta go. You've been at this table for like six hours. And again, not because of the food, but you know what? He, he invited me in. He invited me in. He's like, hey, bro, we're going to Denny's. You want to come hang out? And I'm like, ah, uh, I didn't have any Christian fellowship and friends. I'm like, sure. And you know what? Every week, those people, they became my friends. They helped me to belong. My lifelong friends, the, the guys who were part of my inner circle, were people who were at that table my wife became one of those people at that table. 
Who helped you to belong and how the, did they do that? And then second question I would love for us to wrestle with is this. How could I help others belong? How could I help others be welcomed to the table or to the community of the Lord and to the fellowship of God's people? How could I help others belong to this Trinity Church? How could we do that? Can I just give a suggestion real quickly? If you see somebody who is new, who you're like, ah, they don't look like they've ever been here before. One, introduce yourself to them. Tell them your name. Tell them that you are glad that they are, at, that they are here at church today. And ask them, can you sit with them? Not can you come sit with me, but can you sit with them? That is one of the most warming uh, heartfelt ways to welcome and to help other people belong. The second way is just this right here. Hey, me and my friends, me and my wife, me and my husband, me and my kids, we're going to go have food. We're going to go eat at Panera. Would you like to come with us? I'm so thankful that when me and my wife came here, that's what a couple did for us. And I'm so glad it wasn't Denny's. It was Thai food. Yes, let's go. <laughs> but helping people to belong. That is a characteristic of a life-changing, life-transforming church. Essential four. They were committed to prayer. They were committed to prayer. As you survey the book of Acts and you read through it, oh, somebody's alarm. Um, I think that's my cue, hurry it up. No, I'm just like, um, if you survey the book of Acts, uh, it would reveal that praying was one of the key marks and practices of the early church, that they were devoted to praying with each other and for each other. This church was, it was new, and it was beginning at its infancy stage, and these new believers knew that if anything was gonna happen in and through them and in their lives, that they were completely dependent upon God. They were completely dependent upon him, and that's really what prayer is. Prayer is saying, God, I can't, but you can. We can't, but you can. God, we need you to do it. That's why we just sang right now, right? That, that song, same God. God, we need you to do it. We can't do it. We can't fulfill this great commission. We can't fulfill this great commandment of loving you and loving each other apart from you and your empowering and your equipping. That's what they were doing. They were calling out. They were pleading to God as they prayed for each other. They would pray for boldness, and they would pray for healing, and they would pray for rescue and salvation. They would pray for God's kingdom to continue to spread and to advance. They realized that if anything was gonna be accomplished, God had to do the work in and through them. One of the most important elements of life-changing community is a community that prays with and for each other. And listen, that requires authenticity and vulnerability. It requires authenticity and vulnerability. To be able to say, you know what, I'm not okay. My marriage is really broken right now. I don't need a counselor, I just need prayer. My kid has wandered off the path. I don't need another resource, another blog. I don't need another podcast. I just need prayer. Would you sit and pray with me? You know what? My girlfriend just broke up with me. My boyfriend just broke up with me. I feel like I'm lost, like nobody cares, like nobody loves me. I feel like, you know what? 
I could go away and nobody would, it wouldn't matter. I feel lost when I come to church. I feel like nobody would know if I'm here or not here. Would you pray with me? They don't need your counseling at that moment. They just need you to pray with them and for them. To put your hand on their shoulder and to, to beseech God on their behalf. To pray for them. In this season of transition at Trinity Church, as we're getting ready to call upon a new lead pastor, we need to be prayerful. We need to be praying for our search team and praying for the man who God is going to call. Because we realize and recognize that if God is going to do anything, if anything is going to happen of this, God is going to have to do the work. We are completely dependent upon him, Trinity Church. We are completely dependent upon him. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, my man crush. Some of you are like, who's that? He was a great British preacher, had an amazing beard. <laughs> Google, if you don't know who Spurgeon is, Google him. You have my permission to do that right now. He's considered by most to be the third most amazing preacher in the world. Jesus, Paul, Spurgeon. He was a megachurch pastor before there was even such a thing in the 1800s, preaching to thousands and thousands and thousands of people in, uh, in England. And a lot of people, when they heard Spurgeon preach, they were just like amazed at his teaching of the word and how he would take it and make it so plain and clear and applicable to their lives and how they would see God as he preached the word of God to them. And so they thought that Spurgeon, that the key to the success was Spurgeon's preaching. They thought, oh man, this guy is so gifted, he's so talented, and man, he is the man. And so there's this story of these five young adult students who went to uh, Spurgeon's church there at the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, and they wanted to meet with Spurgeon. They wanted to just meet the man, the myth, the legend, so to speak. And so one day they go there, and uh, eventually they didn't know it, it was Spurgeon himself. Uh, they didn't have social media where you could always see what he looks like. And so they go and this man greets them. And he says, uh, oh, you want to see, you want to see the, the boiler room? They're like, dude, it is like summer in England. I don't want to see the boiler room. Why would we want to see the boiler room? No, you got to come. You got, no, no, show us the pulpit. Show us that cool pulpit that you would come up and stand and you would powerfully proclaim the Lord. Show us that. We want to see that, the place where Spurgeon would stand and teach the word. He's like, no, you guys got to come see the boiler room, man. You got to come see this. And so finally, they're like, all right, fine, old man. We'll go see the boiler room. He takes him down into the boiler room, and there are a few hundred people of that church praying. And he says, this is where it happens. If anything good comes out of this church and the preaching, it's because the people are praying. They are praying for me as their pastor, they're praying for the church, they're praying for England, they're praying for revival, they're praying for hearts and for brothers and sisters to come back to God. They're praying, they're a praying people. Life-transforming churches pray with each other for each other. And so we need to be a people who are praying for each other. So much more I would love to unpack, I really would. 
I could spend a few weeks in Acts chapter two. I just love it. It is such a beautiful description of what life-changing community looks like. And it's the blueprint, I believe, of how we at Trinity Church should prioritize the word of God, the one anothering, helping people to belong, and praying. When I was brought on staff, young adults know this story, I tell it all the time, they're like, oh my gosh. Um, when I was brought on staff, uh, I was rolled out a whiteboard, and it was blank. And uh, Todd, the senior pastor at the time, said, we'd like to build a young adults ministry. Well, what do we have already? Where are the raw materials? We have a couple young adults, and they gather in two different uh, groups throughout the week, but we don't have anything like really uh, like formal. And so I had this blank slate and he said, what do you wanna do? And I am not creative at all. You could ask my wife, the creative gene skipped this brother. And I just, I'm sitting there and I'm like, he's like, think about your, a young adult ministry. What would you want young adult ministry to look like? What do you envision it to look like? And I just go, you know what? When I look at Acts chapter two, I think that's the blueprint. I think that's the blueprint. The preaching of the word of God, loving one another, helping people to belong and praying with and for each other. And so that's what we have sought to do at, in our young adults um, ministry, is to really just model everything after Acts chapter two. And it's really been cool to see what God is doing in and through them. Some of them are here today. It's been really cool to see what God is doing in and through them how God is building their relationship, not just with each other, but with him. And so we sat down uh, a couple weeks ago and we interviewed uh, four young adults on what does Christian community look like for them? What are the important things for them? What challenges do they have and how did they seek to get over them? And why do they love their Christian community? So if you could uh, take a look at the screen here. I practice Christian fellowship and community by really getting involved in the young adults ministry here at Trinity Church. That's been a huge blessing in my life, just being able to have those people pour into me and uplift me with a Christ-like character and move me in the right direction. I think that the Christian walk isn't something we're supposed to do by ourselves. And one, I feel called to carry the spiritual burdens of my brothers and sisters, and then also I I'm so encouraged and appreciative whenever my brothers and sisters carry my own spiritual burdens. Pray for my friends and having them pray for me. I think that's just a really important thing that a lot of people don't do. We do pray for each other. We, we ask, we're intentional with asking each other what's on our hearts, how can you know, we be there for one another, and you know, maybe just listening to one another is all that it takes. And if we feel like we need to hang out a specific day, we'll make time and we'll all meet up at a certain place. I think sometimes life could be too much and we just need that community. Some obstacles I've had to overcome um, in being involved in a Christian community is my own self um, and being willing to put down my walls and actually be vulnerable. Vulnerability is really difficult for me. And I have a hard time trusting people, but I have to trust the Word of God when it says to be in close community with brothers and sisters and to be intimate with them. So I had to overcome that nervousness and um, be brave enough to be vulnerable. In the first few months, I did have feelings of, I don't know if I'm like good enough for this or 
I feel like these people are so much better than me. I was terrified of reaching out, especially when I was new. What I sought to get over that was to just basically introduce myself, like just go for it. Everyone here is so loving and caring. Authenticity is, is huge. Um, when we learn to be ourselves, then we can honestly and with integrity engage with others and foster a community that's based in truth. It really shows your friends who you are and what you're struggling with, and it helps you in your relationship with God and not just dealing with those things by yourself, but sharing those. Some advice I'd give to someone who's struggling to find and cultivate Christian community is first, pray about it. Um, we can lift up our desires and our petitions to the Lord, and I really believe that God calls us to community in certain areas. Um, and then after praying about it, just do it. Just find a place near you, a church near you, and just go. And it's definitely challenging, but if you're willing to be kind and put yourself out there and be vulnerable, then I find that other Christians um, are actually really receptive and welcoming, which I think is a fear that we have, that they won't welcome us. It reminds me of a quote. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. There's something to that, that once we begin to get outside of our comfort zone to engage in, in others in that community and get outside of ourselves, then we will be blessed by it and God will honor that motive because that's what he calls us to. I'm thankful for my Christian community because I honestly don't think I would be walking with the Lord um, if I didn't have the community I have. Um, there have been times in my life when I felt an absence or I haven't felt God's love, but he's always manifested it towards me through his people. So I'd say some ingredients that make for a healthy Christian community, first of all, love. Love above all else binds everything together in perfect harmony. The Bible pretty much gives us a guideline to have those great friendships. It tells us to carry each other's burdens, to pray with each other, to have fellowship and just to spend time with each other. They're my family, like, like I have my, you know, birth family that I was born into and everything, and they're great, but having this Christian family or this Christian friend group that would just be there by my side whenever I need someone to talk to, they're just always there, and they will care for me and love for me whenever I need them, so that's why I'm so thankful for them.